the majority of the hope that I get in the world right now is at least associated with Bitcoin, but not necessarily literally the protocol. For me, the thing that's given me the most hope is the connection with people that I think are really ready for change and are ready to be disruptors um, and are empowered by Bitcoin. They have the, you know, sort of the, the fulcrum of what Bitcoin can do for for your time. And I think that there's a lot of like really beautiful people that are ready to rebuild. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. Today's guest is part-time musician, part-time electrical engineer, and full-time content creator and thinker, Mark Goodwin. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please enjoy the show. Mark Goodwin, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. So happy to have you. Hey, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolute honor. Pleasure to be here. I really appreciate your your input. I've seen you uh, speaking on Twitter spaces, and I think that's where I first got connected with uh, what you've had to say in the space and have really found it valuable. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, know it, it's a really cool platform. Uh, it's been really awesome to uh, yeah, connect with so many like-minded, but also very different-minded people, which I think is the thing that I'm kind of the most excited about that platform, um, which is, you know, sort of the beauty of the internet. So yeah, I'm super happy to uh, be here and chat with you. It really does take away a little bit of the edginess that just the tweets have, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah. I think that there's a, uh, you know, you can kind of hide behind the the uh, <laughs> the text and the pseudo-anonymous stuff. And I think that there's a little bit more you know, I know tox- toxic is, is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but there's a little bit of a, you know, on edge or, a, you know, a bit more intense discourse than probably if people were actually sitting in a room with each other, looking at each other in the eye. I think that that's a, it's the beauty of the internet and also a, a dangerous thing too, for sure. Well, before we jump into the questions, please introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, Mark Goodwin. I am a uh, Bitcoiner. Uh, I live in the Bay Area, been in the space for, yeah, a little over four years. I first interacted with Bitcoin in 2013, but stupidly did not start investing or saving into it. I actually used it as an actual medium of exchange. And uh, yeah, I really caught the bug uh, in 2017. And then like really, you know, I got to, you know, see a big explosion and then a, a couple year bear cycle. And I got to really, you know, dig in and learn about what I had invested into during the bear, which was um, great. And I, you know, kind of really dedicated my uh, time and my self-education to Bitcoin, like at the end of 2019 into 2020 and found myself with a lot of free time, uh, as I think a lot of us did in 2020 and uh, just sort of dedicated myself. I was like, if I'm going to be educating people or talking about this, I better know what the heck I'm talking about. And uh, so, yeah, I've been a, a, a pretty avid uh, self-educating Bitcoiner um, for the last couple of years. And um, recently I've been lucky enough to be sort of platformed by some uh, Bitcoin institutions that I really adore. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be a part-time contributor to Bitcoin Magazine, which has been awesome. I've met so many amazing people through that. So. But yeah, in terms of my personal life, I came up in the bar industry, in the hospitality industry. Um, and I started a nonprofit a couple of years ago called The Pin Project. That's about sort of hospitality sobriety. 
Um, and I had a lot of issues going to work and saying, you know, I'm not going to drink today. And, and then, you know, someone came in or a friend or a friend of a coworker came in. And then next thing, you know, there's like a shot on my, on my bar. And I just, you know, I, I was having a lot of, a lot of difficulty sort of upholding my intentions um, in a workplace environment surrounded by alcohol. And so started a project called the pin project. That's sort of like a nonverbal piece of communication, um, to let everyone around, you know, like while I'm wearing this, I'm not trying to drink sort of like a temporary little, little shield. Um, so I've been working on that for a few years. Um, I started to do some tours and, uh, education with that at the start of 2020. And I did a, a five city tour in January, but mostly I've been doing online stuff since. And you have an engineering background too, is that correct? Well, I went to school initially for music, actually. I went to New England Conservatory in Boston, and then um, I did a year there studying jazz drums and um, didn't really like it. I didn't really connect with anyone. Um, so I decided I wanted to go to a liberal arts school and like start a group with the, you know, literature and movie kids and then, you know, play, you know, during the day with the jazz guys. And I did, did two years there, started a band. Um, and then those guys were a bit older and they had graduated. And so I sort of hopped in the van with them and we toured across the country and we soft landed in San Francisco and were based out of there for a while. Uh, and I got really into audio engineering and production as sort of a, just a means of survival for being a, a drummer. You know, no one really wants to, uh, go see like a solo drummer or anything like that. I'm the target audience for it and I wouldn't do it. Um, so I, uh, I got really into composition and production. And then when you get a little bit further along into it, it's, it really is kind of just literally engineering and math. Um, so I ended up going back to school at a uh, city college and I completed a electrical engineering certificate and, uh, yeah, I learned a lot. I actually, one of the like first days in one of those classes, our teacher showed a, a Bitcoin mine, like an ASIC chip on the on the uh, thing. And I had already been into Bitcoin at that point, but I went up and talked to him. I was like, Oh, so are you a Bitcoiner? And he was like, oh, I don't, and, like, didn't want to talk about it at all. I was like, you're probably Satoshi. But uh, yeah, no, I was lucky enough to be living um, in San Francisco at the time. And they have a wonderful program of uh, accessibility to community college um, for free if you've been living in the city for a year. So definitely a, a wonderful win for the uh, for the progressive liberal movement. And I uh, got some really <laughs> right. good education. And um, yeah, it was really fun to go back to school as like an adult. Um, I took it a lot more seriously. I was there early. I always had all my homework and, you know, I, I did super well in all my classes because I was actually interested in the material. It was something I tangibly went to do. Um, and I did some fun stuff too. I did some painting and some composition, but, um, yeah, it was, it was really fun. And, um, I'm, I'm by no me, I'm still, I would absolutely consider myself a layman, um, in electrical engineering completely, but, um, it was really fun to kind of get the like basic fundamentals of electricity and circuits. Um, cause it's just so applicable to everyday life. Everything is electricity now. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's definitely helped me in my like fundamental understanding of Bitcoin. Um, again, not that I think I'm certainly not a programmer, certainly couldn't design an ASIC or anything like that, but just kind of like the very, very basic fundamentals I think have been very applicable to my understanding of Bitcoin. And so I've written a little bit about kind of the energy you know, component of Bitcoin and why I think a lot of people sort of get that wrong. It really is a probably the best shot we have of modernizing and 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 uh, sustaining our electrical grid um, is actually using proof of work rather than this sort of misunderstood thing. Like it's going to just you know 
we're going to stay exactly the same as how we produce energy and just consume all of it. It's sort of a, it's kind of a, a fear mongering tactic. Uh, right. Right. So I know we'll, we'll, get, we'll to that. get into that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So the obligatory question that every Bitcoin podcast has is how did you get into it specifically? But I want to frame that a little bit differently for you on one of the Twitter spaces that I heard you speak on, you described yourself as a reformed environmental vegan. <laughs> and so when you first learned about Bitcoin, how did it map onto your political views and your value systems at that time? And did it change after learning about Bitcoin? Yeah. And I, I, that's, that's so funny that you pulled that out. I, I, I'm still a vegan and I'm still absolutely an environmentalist. Just, um, I think the like reasoning behind why I was doing a lot of the things that I was doing, I think I was very guilt driven. And I actually, I was, uh, working at, you know, before I got into the bar world, I was working at sort of this, um, you know, farm to table, um, like market, um, called Byright in San Francisco. And, um, everyone there is a vegetarian or vegan and very, very progressive, um, really amazing place. I, that's where I kind of got my first community, um, when I moved out to the city. And, um, I, I read this article that was about, uh, you know, the best way to reduce your carbon footprint is, you know, cutting out meat from your diet and specifically red meat generally. But in the article, and it said, but most people won't do that for the greater good. The reason why they would do it is because of the health benefits and maybe some of the personal reasons and how there's this, you know, sort of a separation between like the greater good versus the selfish individual good. And, you know, even though, you know, you can cut your carbon footprint by like 60% by not eating meat, the majority of people that go vegetarian are going to do it for selfish reasons. And so I kind of read that and being, I, I've, I have a very big contrarian streak, which I think runs through all of my formation of my ideals and, and definitely my politics. And uh, I read that article and I was sort of just like, well, <laughs> screw that. I'm going to be the change I want to see in the world. And I'm going to go vegetarian for exactly that reason for the greater good. I kind of took that as almost like a statistical challenge. And I think that that is, you know, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm now vegan, not vegetarian, and I have been for a long time. I think I sort of said it at the beginning, but just moving my, my meanings and my reasons for doing things as opposed, you know, in, instead of a fear or guilt driven propulsion, but rather one of like, well, what do you get out of it? Um, and, and what, what is the gift you're giving yourself by doing it? Kind of the same thing with sobriety, honestly. When I went sober, you know, there's a lot of like this idea of you are restricting something from yourself and you're like self-flagellating and you're, you know, this, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic and sort of, you know, this Catholic guilt sort of thing. And, and I just don't really know how ultimately healthy that is for choices that you make, especially individually, but especially for society. And I think a lot of the marketing and conversation and discourse behind a lot of these things that we need to do as a society are driven out of fear and out of guilt. And I just really don't associate that with that anymore. And so I think that's what I mean when I say I'm a reformed environmental vegan. I'm still an environmentalist, still a vegan, but I think my reasons for doing it are no longer out of this like self-importance and I'm better than you and I'm doing a better thing than you and I care more about the world than you. Um, how, how do you not get this? And kind of more of like a silent, like, you know, I think John Coltrane said, uh, you know, he's vegetarian because it brings him peace and he is a more peaceful person as a vegetarian. 
And it's not about any any sort of uh, demarcation or better than thou sort of thing, but rather just like, I feel better. I'm a better person because I feel better. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's kind of, if, if there's any, any sort of direction to that, because um, I love engaging and I, I think we need to engage in the environmental space and the progressive space as Bitcoiners. But um, I think if, if, if there's anything that I can kind of do in my, you know, one foot in, one foot out, sort of left, post left, is sort of maybe just, you know, really making sure that we're really careful about how we brand things. And I think that people really like pick on the branding and lose the actual meaning of why we do these things. And um, I think also a part of it is sort of, uh, you know, connecting with the people in the space that are like really against a lot of these movements. You know, there's a, there's a huge movement in, in the Bitcoin space, as I know, you know, that's sort of maybe in the typical you know, uh, or, or rather I wouldn't say typical conservatism, but it's, it's associated with typical, you know, right behavior. And I don't really think it is like, I don't think, uh, you know, people that are promoting Bitcoin for a self-sovereign reason, like, I don't think that that's necessarily like the typical GOP, <laughs> uh, sort of policy. I mean, I think it like, it goes well beyond that. Just like, I don't think the DNC really represents, you know, the actual progressive movement. Like, I don't think Biden is a progressive. I, I just don't. Um, and I love the progressive movement, but I think a lot of it has been co-opted and misbranded. And I think it's so much easier to attack when you let that happen. So I'm going to yeah. interrupt you real quick so that you can circle back onto how Bitcoin mapped on to those lifestyle choices when you first heard about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets back to my sort of the contrarian streak and, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm working class and all my friends are working class and I was living in like the most expensive city, basically in the world, um, in a lot of ways and was just struggling a lot, you know, to make ends meet and to, uh, I mean, not, and, and again, not to, I think people really truly struggle. And I think I had a lot of, you know, you could, you could maybe say more first world problems struggle, but, but still struggling in this very expensive city, um, and I was managing at the time at this, you know, little market and I wasn't really making enough to like pay my way. And I was living in like an art warehouse space that wasn't insulated in the middle of like, not a res literally not a residential area. We weren't even allowed to live there. And, uh, it certainly wasn't a nice neighborhood to live in. And I was still having a hard time struggling, you know, struggling to make ends meet. I was on food stamps. I was, you know, sort of building my, myself up and I'm a pretty well-educated, smart, kind person. And I was, um, you know, very privileged in a lot of ways and was still having trouble, you know, making ends meet in like one of the best, most affluent cities in the world. And I think when I found Bitcoin, uh, it really gave me hope for the first time that there was an out to, uh, you know, economic, uh, you know, struggle. And that for the first time I really had you know, something that kind of fell in, in, in line with my ideology of, of maybe a little bit of an anti-establishment streak or a re-establishment streak. And, uh, yeah, I think I was really interested in a little bit of the number go up technology for sure. But I think mostly just that, just like a, a new way for a lot of my generation that doesn't necessarily have the access to like the stereotypical American dream and like home ownership and, and actually building up savings. Cause I just found whenever I built up my savings, there was always something that came up, whether my car got towed or something like that. Did you, did you want to jump in? 
Yeah, I was going to because I wanted to touch on the. Do you think that the the fact that you were struggling financially opened the door more for Bitcoin in the sense that you weren't averse to it because it did not meet the four hundred one k four fifty seven plan that you were no- normally associated with? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it didn't it didn't attack anything that I was doing. It's not like I had ten million dollars and I was like, no, Bitcoin's bad because it's going to take away my power structure. It was like. I got nothing to, you know, it's the Bob Dylan quote, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. It was like, I had nothing to lose to invest in Bitcoin and learn about it because the opportunity that potentially presents itself in Bitcoin, which I think is, you know, very mathematically, I think it's the best chance that a lot of us have. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't like going against anything that I was necessarily like taking advantage of. So I think I, my heart was more open to the possibility of it. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I think I was, I was very primed for Bitcoin because, you know, the uh, status quo system uh, wasn't, you know, necessarily really taking care of me. And that said, like I I grew up, um, both my parents are CPAs. They run a business together. Um, I was able to go to school. I don't have any debt. You know, I'm a, (laughs) I'm a white straight male. Like there's a lot of things in here that I, you know, I, I, I totally understand my privilege. I'm banked. I have a bank account you know, and there's, you know, like a quarter of Americans are like underbanked, you know? So it's like, there were so many things that I, I was entrenched in the system and could take advantage of things that a lot of people couldn't. And I was still struggling and just watching the wealth divide grow. I mean, if you want to see wealth divide in action, just go spend a day in San Francisco. I mean, you're stepping over people that are uh, shooting themselves up and are having incredibly difficult time, you know, mentally and physically. And then, you know, two doors down, there's like, you know, Zuckerberg or whatever, you know, and again, I'm not picking on anyone, but there's just the, the spectrum of, of, uh, you know, human struggle or lack thereof is like so apparent in San Francisco. And I was just sort of bopping in the middle, you know, certainly, you know, very much so far away from being on the streets or anything like that. And I had so many fail safes I could have fallen back on. I understand that, but, um, I really wanted to build things on my own and, and, um, you know, both my parents were the first of their family to go to college. And like, you know, they had worked so hard and we had, we, you know, when I was a kid, we were, you know, we weren't necessarily super well off. And and we, when I was really young and I, my dad worked super late and my mom was home taking care of us. And, and I, you know, saw us, you know, my dad kind of, he became a partner at, at, uh, he worked in um, at Arthur Anderson and Ernst and Young before he left to start his own business. And I, you know, I kind of saw us sort of start to, you know, pick ourselves up into kind of the, you know, entrenched into the the sort of the middle class. And you know, it was really important to me to like earn my way. And my parents were really good about. Uh, I have a, you know, that talk about privilege. You know, they they gave me a fake checkbook to, uh, you know, to to run interest when I was like nine years old and learning about compounding interest and all of these things that just a lot of people don't have basic financial economic literacy that I was exposed to as a kid. And um, I really wanted to be self made and not just be something that I was relying on my folks for anything like that. And um, Bitcoin seemed to be the answer to so many of all of those things that I just said. Of like, wow, this is going to fix you know so many issues with people that don't have access to banking, people that don't have access to like money generation, people that don't, that don't have access to you know very basic financial literacy for whatever reason. And I think Bitcoin is sort of this tool that really like you know, shows how much the emperor does not have clothes on. And um, I think it's a really powerful 
uh, tool for liberation um, for people to like free up their time. And again, I'm an artist, so I was always, you know, working so hard and not actually making art. And I had dropped out of school and moved to San Francisco to be a musician. And I'm working six days a week at a bar, drinking myself, you know, not to death, but not having a good time and really struggling with it. And, you know, a lot of it was from the economic incentives of like, I need to work to pay my way. Now I have an apartment, but it costs this and the rent just went up and, oh, someone moved out. And, you know, so there were just always, always these hurdles. And I think Bitcoin just really like... Yeah, it just sort of like took over as uh, my my means of hope for the future for myself personally and and my generation and my friends. Well, I think we'll circle back to a lot of uh, what you've just touched on. It was very insightful and candid. So thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. Of course. Yeah. You, you touched on a little bit of the political elements to Bitcoin, and you've also written about that. Uh, and so... You've described the Bitcoin protocol as innately apolitical, but that there are social implications to its the design. But this is a topic that's you know pretty popular right now on Bitcoin Twitter, whether or not Bitcoin is political. And some have argued that the, the design, the code itself, is in fact a political position. Do you agree with that? Interesting. Um, no, I don't think I agree with it, actually. Um, I think it innately has political implications. But I think it's a technological advancement. Like, I don't think the internet is a political tool. I don't think the internet is innately political. But the social implications that come from the technological advancement have vast effects on the political system, be it for good or for positive. I think there's a lot of things you could say about, you know, you know, the, the spreading of misinformation is a net negative, of course, but also, you know, having non-establishment access to information that isn't sort of controlled by these gatekeepers is a net positive. And I think that the connection that the internet has given us, I like to, I like to compare it to sort of bees, right? Like if you took the physical pheromone, uh, you know, hive mind, you know, communication uh, technology, I guess, or evolution that bees have, they would be a different creature. I mean, they wouldn't evolve the same way. They wouldn't defend, they wouldn't have the same political systems that they have. They wouldn't, you know, okay, you're a drone, you're this, you, you save the queen, you're the queen, you know, all of those systems, those structures that come from this hive mind technology, it wouldn't happen without the, the, the evolutional, you know, the technology of, of the way that they communicate, they wouldn't work in the same way. It wouldn't be this hive mind. And I think the internet has done the same thing to humans. And I think we're like in the you know, <laughs> we're in that transition right now. We're not quite bees. You know, there's there's a lot of us that remember getting the internet, and we grew up with the you know the the outside and and books, and and then we got the internet, and it was a really big deal. And I and I you know I'm just I I, I like to consider the people in my age group. I'm 31 as sort of the like we have this such a beautiful opportunity because we will never not be connected and on and on pace with you know technology moving because we did grow up with it but we also remember when it wasn't there and i think that that's really important we weren't raised on algorithms in the same way that i think a lot of kids these days are and i'm not anti algorithms or anti tech or any of that stuff i think it's incredible i think some of the kids that i interact with it's not a ton these days but you know some of my 
friends are starting to have kids and whatever. And they're unbelievably smart and they're so quick. And I think that there are some unbelievable advantages to having access to the, you know, the entirety of information of humanity, you know, at their, on their touch pads. But I, I do think that there is something sort of innate about, you know, maybe that kind of our RS generation where we, we remember the internet coming in and affecting our lives, but we kind of remember a time a little bit before it. So no, I don't think Bitcoin is innately political. I think it innately has political effects, but the reason why it has the political effects that it does, same with the internet, is because of its apolitical stance. The fact that it is pseudo-anonymous, anyone can make a key. It doesn't need to be, uh, you don't even need to be human to use Bitcoin. So it certainly doesn't matter what color skin you are, what your sexual preferences are, uh, who you vote for, who you have voted for in the past, if you've changed your mind. You know, the blockchain is forever, but the in, but the interactions on top of it, you know, it, 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 it doesn't care who you are. Um, and I think that is one of the like fundamental differences of Bitcoin versus like our financial system. You know, uh, when you look at the banking statistics of, you know, via demographics of who's banked and who's not, I mean, it is unbelievably skewed, you know, away from women, away from people of color and towards men and toward, you know, and Bitcoin couldn't give a hoot less about that. And there are actually like, you know, you can see a lot of those statistics and those demographics that, you know, people are skipping a step you know, you see it in, in, uh, I actually traveled to Africa a couple of years ago and I went to Kenya and they have the most interactions on, uh, of digital currency. They have all of, you know, they don't necessarily, it's not crazy Bitcoin adoption yet, but they have this thing called the M-Pesa, which is, um, it's actually like mobile credits, um, for cell phone minutes. And they actually turned it in, they realized you could send it with, uh, you know, through SMS, through, through a text message. And they created this whole circular economy around using cell phone minutes um, because their currencies were so insane and fluctuating. Mm -hmm. And then they ended up actually transitioning the minutes into a tangible currency and have it, instead of being based on minutes, be actually based on a currency. And um, it was really fascinating to see how they sort of like, they went from being underbanked to like on the cutting edge of, technology and they skipped this whole step of all of these gatekeepers, you know, they're, they're not, Africa is not going to start putting in, you know, bank of America, uh, you know, ATMs everywhere or branches. It's like, get a smartphone and skip a step. And now you're self-sovereign and you, and you're, you're skipping a whole generation of financial tools that, that never found its way to you. And now you can be right on, right on the cutting edge. So I, again, a little bit of a, of a rant there, but no, I don't think Bitcoin is political, but I think its political implications are, we haven't even seen the, the, the start of the effects. But I think by an actual protocol standpoint, the rules that it fights for and that it upholds in this sort of group consensus, yes, governance is involved, but the actual like, thing that it's fighting for is very like apolitical, I think. I agree. I think the question, while fascinating, is ultimately of little utility in trying to figure out because it, it ends up being, well, is it more right-wing? Is it more libertarian? Is it more democratic, et cetera? And there's never going to be an answer to that because it's all of those things, right? Yep. And I think the the benefit of having the conversation is ultimately to better understand what we want out of the protocol rather than is it one of those things or the other. And so I agree with you that it is apolitical. The only caveat to that I would make is the Genesis block. Chancellor on the brink of second bailout. Whether that's a political statement or not, I think is up for debate. Yes. That being said, though, 
arguably that's more of a progressive statement than anything else. I mean, we're talking about Occupy Wall Street here, so totally agree. I I I think the question is fascinating uh, and fun to have, but ultimately, again, people are going to project their value system onto Bitcoin in whatever way that they want. We always anthropomorphize technology, so it's something that we're going to to do, regardless of whether or not there's a a hard answer to it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that sort of gets to intentions versus incentives, right? Yes, so yes. I think the intentions of cryptography in general are, are you know, I, you know, from the cyberpunk movement, like PGP and, and all that stuff, when it, when it kind of came out, they, they sort of understood they're like, this is going to allow crime and like human pain by allowing people a communications tool that is truly you know, uh, uncensorable and peer to peer. Um, is it worth that understanding to know that what it is enabling is humans to have a peer to peer uncensored, you know, so it's sort of the intentions of it versus the actual incentives of it. So I, I do think Satoshi probably, yeah, I think, I think that there was a anti-establishment anti-banking, uh, or central banking <laughs> element to it. I don't think you can really, you, you sort of have to agree with that, I think. Um, and I agree. I think that the Genesis block, that is a statement, a political statement. Um, but I think the actual like protocol itself is not a political statement because its incentives are sort of apolitical. And that's where I think we're at a very interesting time. And one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you is because Bitcoin is sort of like, you know, waking up and is really opening itself up to the, the political spectrum and, and people are paying attention. And with that, there comes a lot of uh, danger, I think. You know, we want people to adopt Bitcoin and not co-opt Bitcoin. And I, I think that that's going to be the battle over the next couple of years. And I think right. people like you and, and some of our friends that we, that we talk about or talk to on these Twitter spaces are, are sort of on the forefront of you know, basically all you need to do right now is just say, I like Bitcoin and you'll start getting donations and people will vote for you. And there is this sort of single issue voter block that is establishing itself uh, in the Bitcoin community. And I don't necessarily agree with it. And I, I think I agree with it in the sense of if you are actually pushing for tangible legislation that is going to help Bitcoin, then I'm then I'm for it. Because I think Bitcoin is that, you know, the Gladstein, you know, metaphor of like the Trojan horse, I think is really apt. I think it's it's a great one that it is a Trojan horse for freedom. And no matter how we get that horse in the door, it's worth it. But at the same time, you know, there are people that have like made a career out of like, you know, the state monopoly of violence that are now political figures that are using Bitcoin. And I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I like, I can't, it's hard for me to associate with some of that stuff. It's hard for me to hear some of these, you know, people that literally work for the military and the DOD are now, you know, kind of getting platformed. And I think that they're smart and, you know, we need those people in, in the discussion to some degree, but there's a part of me, this contrarian, like anti-establishment pro-human uh, anti-violence. I'm very, very anti-violence. And um, there's a part of me that's sort of like, <laughs> why are we platforming these people? Why are we letting them talk about this thing? And But that's kind of the beauty of Bitcoin, right? I mean, it, if it is the things I say it is, if it is a political, then everyone has the right to use it. Everyone has the right to talk about it. But Bitcoin is going to be used by criminals. Um, it's certainly less used by criminals and less efficient than cash and US dollar. And we can acknowledge that. And that is just factually true. 
But Bitcoin, you know, pseudo anonymously, like it will allow, you know, some things to happen that we probably don't wouldn't like to see happen on Bitcoin. But that's the, you know, that's how open protocols work. And that's what that is the cost of censorship resistance is that baddies get to use it. Right. Right. I have two thoughts. One is just I'm in Minneapolis and at the Walker Art Museum, one of the exhibits on the wall had technology is not good nor bad, but it's also not neutral, Mm. which I think is very applicable uh, to the protocol itself. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say was I was at an event with uh, a Minnesota U.S. representative, and he outright said that the day after the infrastructure bill, when all the Bitcoiners woke up to the fact that it didn't have favorable uh, legislation, that the influx, the tens of thousands of calls to the representatives was a wake-up call. And he was very deliberate in saying that it was a wake-up call because they recognized it as a donor block. Not necessarily that it was because they were interested in Bitcoin or crypto at large, but rather they saw it as a, a donor block. And so I think that's telling in the fact that, yes, it's exciting to see some of these politicians speak about it, but the intentionality of why I think needs to be a bit more transparent. No, I, I t- totally. And I think that exactly what you just said is why I have some skepticism about some of the single issue voting block people, as well as the politicians that are taking, you know, that are u- taking advantage of that a, a little bit. And I, there's no, there's, I'm not stalking in specifics. There's no one that I think is running that's doing anything that I'm that I'm like super against necessarily. But yeah, I think the that is the acknowledgement that worries me a little bit is that it's not necessarily like, oh, Bitcoin's really cool. It's going to help everyone. It's going to bank the unbanked. It's going to be this. It's more like, oh, this is an important voting block that we need to make sure we don't lose, which again, that's the incentives of Bitcoin. That's how it works. That's the political game. But yeah, again, I really want to see an adoption and a pro-Bitcoin legislation rather than just like, I'm taking two paychecks and Bitcoin, but then I'm going to do a bunch of crappy stuff and be authoritarian and and right. and whatever. So, right. you know, for me, I think we should just be careful. Well, first off, actually, more so than anything, what we should really be careful about is where we spend our Satoshis. Because where you spend your money is how you vote. and And that has never been more true, I think, than, than ever. Um, and that includes financial contributions and PACs and super PACs and all this, you know, we've just become corporations or people now that, I mean, we're, we're just so far past, we're in this hyper normalization of, of money and politics right now. It's just so absurd. But if Bitcoin is going to really, you know, be this disinflationary currency that it's really important where you spend, and we're going to see this amass you know, appreciation and purchasing power, where you spend your Satoshis is where you're going to see growth. And we have to kind of look at it as this like seed that we plant. And if we're going to donate Satoshis to a political party or a political movement or a politician in particular, know that, you know, what you're giving them is not just, you know, it's not just for that moment, but also like you're establishing them and giving them uh, like fuel and 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 growth opportunity to become a really formidable figure because we all know how much money and power are are interconnected. So I think we just should just be really careful about um, you know where we spend our precious satoshis and uh, who we spend them with, and make sure that we plant them in 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 grounds that we want to see growth that we think is going to not just 
you know, allow people to take advantage of this voting block, but actually like improve the things that we want to see. And I think that there's a lot of differences of opinion of where we'd like to see Bitcoin go or who, you know, you know, what, what does it mean to be a Bitcoiner? Uh, are you a self-individual sovereign person or are you this sort of, you know, is it more of like a, a, a social, uh, you know, technology for for making the average life better. I think both things are kind of true. And so where we where we vote with our money is exceptionally important right now. And uh, I, my, that's my only concern at all about the politicizing of Bitcoin is just that I think that there's a lot of people that are just very clearly like just hopping onto that free money train and they might just be liquidating it for dollars. I don't know. Or maybe they're building these war chests and... Um, I think we should just be really careful. This is kind of the first time where, you know, I love that we use the term pleb because I think it's really the first time that the the plebs kind of have a a, a bigger understanding and front ran, you know, the political institutions of the world. And it's sort of up to us to like, you know, teach them how to use it and how to get that voting block. And so the people that have done it really carefully and really well, um, we have formidable allies Well, I agree that one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that it is both a vote as well as a donation. By buying Bitcoin, you are in effect donating money by NGU to everybody else that has it. It's a vote by voting with your money, right? You're opting out of the system. And I think that's one of those kind of beautiful elements is that it is not either one, it's both. But I was going to jump ahead and, and ask you why you think progressives have been so averse Bitcoin. Yeah. And I also remember what I was going to say, just that, you know, we have the opportunity to like not build the cages of the future sort of entrapment of, you know, we we cannot, we can choose to not work for chain analysis and not work for CBDC development. And, and so we actually have the opportunity now as a voter block to restrict our information from the people that don't deserve it um, as a way to ensure that, you know, we are a Bitcoin forward operating under this sort of, you know, actually decentralized and, and the censorship resistance. But anyway, to get to the uh, the question about uh, why progressives traditionally have been so averse, my first reaction is I have no idea because it seems like on basically every level, it would be completely adopted or at least co-opted by, by these movements. I mean, right. the thing that really you know, really bums me out about a, a sort of the current political display, I guess, is like you got guys that I don't, uh, you know, generally associate with at all with any sort of political leanings, like a Ted Cruz or something, who I went to the Texas blockchain summit and I heard him sit down and like really succinctly describe how proof of work specifically can be a buyer and seller of last resort to help, you know, monetize and solidify sustainable uh, energy outputs in the electrical grid and how it is uh, an inflation hedge against corrupt, you know, government agencies. And yeah, and all of these things that I'm like, you sound like a progressive, but you're like the least progressive human in so many other ways. And it was really confusing for me because I, I, I walked away from it being like, "I, I really totally agree with him. Right. And, and that it was confusing for all of us. Right. And, and, you know, I, I was talking to friends cause you know, I have always been a liberal, I voted liberal, uh, my whole life. And, 
and yeah, and like Ted Cruz has always sort of been this like caricature of like, you know, maybe not the ultimate caricature, he who must not be named, but like he's been sort of that guy that you can kind of make fun of and laugh at. And he's been on the wrong side of basically everything. And it's like, wait, no, he gets this. And then, you know, from my home state, Elizabeth Warren, who is supposed to be this anti Wall Street, you know, trying to, you know, bank the unbanked and all this stuff. And she comes out saying that it's like a risk to the US dollar system and to our banking incumbent banking system. And it's like, isn't that what we want? Like, don't we want to like fight that? Like, isn't that what we're doing here? And to to see, like I watched that, uh, you know, they had all the CEOs of of like the stable coins and, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and the Stellar gal and, 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 a, and a few other people, Jeremy Allaire from Circle, they did that that meeting in front of Congress. And, uh, you know, there was a member of the squad talking about, you know, proof of work as being this like, you know, using more energy than Argentina and, and you know, just all of these things that are just really not, you know, they're just show an extreme lack of understanding of this technology and are really like sort of these like fear mongering tactics that are just, I would like to think the progressive movement is so far above and that we should be really like approaching this with like the opportunity to actually implement a lot of these changes that these progressives have run on. Right. And, um, I think that's where I've sort of become, I've sort of removed myself a little bit from a lot of the left. First off, I don't really feel like I've removed myself from the progressive movement. I think the progressive movement has really removed itself from me. And it's become something that really isn't necessarily about, you know, always championing the unchampioned. And it's become kind of this like sort of a virtue signal over actual tangible policy. These people that I like respected or donated to or campaigned for are, you know, going up there and, and you know, okay, we're, we don't like Pelosi and this, and we're going to fight for this. And it's okay if we're only, you know, a one-term congresswoman or congressman, you know, if that means we, you know, we really shake up the system. And then it's like three months later, they're like, in, you know, voting for Pelosi. And it's just like, how, how did we, is, is the system really that, you know, is the incentives of the system really that corrupting? where these people, are they running under good intentions and then getting into the system and they're seeing, oh, wait, no, I can make a career out of this. I can make money off of this. I can do this. I'm going to go along with, you know, the status quo. Like, I just don't really get it. Um, I, I've sort of lost like my faith in their intentions um, because of their actions, not because of what they're saying, but because of their actions. And um, it's really sad because I, I really find myself without a lot of, uh, I don't really associate with, I certainly don't associate with the right in, in so many ways and 95% of the ways. And I would say with the modern left now, I don't associate with like 50% of it. And I, I think it's just, it's really sad because I think that there's so many of us that are really left without a political home. And like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm a very progressive person in a lot of social things. And then you know, some of them, maybe a little bit more of the economic stuff. I can, I can sometimes be a little bit more conservative, but I, I really don't associate with either. And I'd like to not think of myself as any bit in, involved in the American political system, because I think it's so disgusting. Right. 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 I think that's an important thing to tease out there is you can still maintain progressive values while still being extremely upset totally. with the current democratic movement. Totally. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is, at least for me, it's being discouraged by what you said. It's 
it's the actions and the inaction and how easily they fall back into the same patterns from a, a political standpoint. And the the movements, the things that we want to have done are not being done. Right. And I've reached a point in my life where I don't have a lot of faith that they are going to get done. And again, it's not necessarily that I believe any single one of these politicians is evil necessarily. I think that's very rare, but rather it is a product of the political system trying to affect a complex system. Totally. I, I think the incentives of the status quo, like I, I really do think a lot of the people that have run have had really, really, really good intentions. And then when they get entrenched in the system, they see the incentives of the system are to continue along. Every single person voted for the CARES Act. Every single one. It was a unanimous thing. The greatest upward transfer of wealth in the history of our country. Right. And I think that we needed to do it in a lot of ways and we needed to take care of people and we can't just shut down everyone's business and not pay for them. Right. You know, there's a lot of things that we, you know, but like we didn't roll out a universal health care. We didn't, you know, there were so many things that we could have done that would have actually really tangibly helped people that we didn't do. And instead we like literally let private corporations dole out the the bailouts and we let these banks make like billions of dollars off of literally sending out checks to people and, and processing fees. And so there's so much of the like incentives of the status quo. I think I said it in the article, like if there's anything we learned, you know, uh, like what Bitcoin does is it really like shines a light on the politicians that are closest to the money printer, right? And like, it's not just that simple. And that's a that's a it's a gross reduction, but at the same time, it kind of isn't. And cash rolls everything around me. And I think right. uh, it's very easy to like, you know, push the can down the road and let the status quo happen, which is what we did in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. With that crisis, it was split between two political parties, and yet, you know, Bernanke was endorsed by both sides in the same way Powell is doing that now, and we have this unelected official who has extreme effects and control over me and you and our bank account and our purchasing power. We didn't vote for him. And that's like not right. And um, so I think that there's this like an, this unbelievable entrenched incentive in the old system that needs a bucking and it needs a, you know, we need to throw this off and, and sort of reestablish. And, and Bitcoin is a really cool uh, tool to sort of subvert the system and re-incentivize towards you know, self-sovereignty, individualism, uh, and this fixed supply concept, this digital scarcity, it's incredibly important. And it's it's really a discovery almost more than an invention. And um, what that's going to do to the incentives of the political system is going to be very interesting. Um, and I'm super excited for it. I, I don't think it's going to be this waltz through the, the daisies like everyone says it is. I think it's going to be a fight. And I think we're in that fight. Um, and I'm expecting to see anything, you know, in terms of you know, I, I to quote Ross Stevens, the the Nidig guy. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is very stable; it's fiat that's volatile. And I know this isn't necessarily about the markets, but I think that that's really true about like, you know, the the incentives of Bitcoin are very static. Save in it, it will appreciate and extrapolate over time. But the incentives over an inflationary system and a fiat system are spend, 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 and we get just bombarded with advertising with you know, low, like there are negative interest rates in, in the world. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. You're so incentivized not to save your money and your life essence. And it's like, no wonder 
you know, mental health issues are going through the roofs and ODs are going through the roofs and alcohol related deaths are going through the roofs. It's like, like we, we, we've created a system that doesn't encourage, you know, stability. We'll, we'll get to that. Sure. Okay. Okay. I, I think there's a strong parallel actually to uh, medicine. We, as physicians, we always, I shouldn't say always, most of us go into medicine as idealists. We want to make change. We want to help people in whatever capacity we, we can. So very much a, an idealism. But then you get into the system and we're all burnt out and we all want to leave the system. And, and yet most of us don't. And I arguably, I think healthcare and medical care is probably going to change last. I think we're going to see more financial change as a result of Bitcoin than we're going to see any change in the healthcare system just because it is so entrenched. But I think there's that parallel between physicians and politicians in the sense that most go in with a sense of idealism, wanting to do good. And then you get into this, the cogwheels of the system and you realize you're just a number and you are needing to meet certain criteria. Then as a politician, you are just fundraising from one cycle to the next and you, you are not able to affect change as much as you had hoped. Yeah. It, it, again, I think it really is that intentions versus incentives, right? It's like, right, exactly. you, you're, you're, you're incentivized, you know, as a politician, right? To get reelected. Right. Exactly. That's your main right. incentive right. as a politician. And that's wrong. Right. That shouldn't be your main, your main incentive as a politician. You know, it should, and AOC said this when she was campaigning and like, I quoted her kind of earlier and she was like, Hey, you know what? If you're only a one-term you know, Congresswoman, because you really, you know, you go after and attack the the status quo and you don't and you don't get reelected. So be it. But it's worth, you know, you know, making a making a, a racket and, and, and you know, and then when they actually get into the system, the incentives of, oh, well, actually, well, if you get reelected, you actually can be one of the most powerful political figures in the world. And she just is. She just factually is. Um, she's a smart talker. And, you know, I, I think. I think people really resonate with her in a lot of ways. And so her incentives changed from being from her intentions of running. And um, I think that's true with healthcare. I think that's true with like anything. It's true with art, like for musicians, right? It's like you make a really good record because it was something that was really personal to you. And then the next thing you know, the record right. label's like, when's the next one coming? And you have to go in and, and make the next one. And that's why there's that sophomore slump concept in art, because your intentions and your incentives are now different. Your incentives are to make more money for the record label and to, you know, keep your fame up as opposed to this, like maybe more pure intentioned, I want to make this art that's sort of expressive of coming truly from my heart. And again, I, I think there's plenty of album twos that are fantastic. And there's plenty of politicians that really do care and are fantastic. But Incentives versus intentions is just is the name of the game. And I, I think Bitcoin really exposes that. So I want to stay on the, the progressive version for a moment. But before we do, I'm in, I want to back up about Ted Cruz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> me too. I want to I want to know how it made you feel in the moment when you heard Ted Cruz say something that you agreed with. Did, was was there any disconnect there where you're like, no, I should not feel this way. I want to hate this guy. Tell me about it. Yeah. I think, I think like socially, well, it was funny. Cause I, so 
I have a group of, of, you know, really good friends that, you know, we, we, we started it at the, at the start of the lockdowns and we, we play dungeons and dragons every week and we, we, we play online and it's super fun. And I was telling them right before I left, I was like, I can't believe I'm going to a conference that Ted Cruz is speaking and he's like one of the headliners and I'm like super excited to go. Like, I just can't believe that. Like, if you told me that a year ago, I would have laughed in your face. Right. And they all just, you know, said all this stuff like, oh, you're going to like crop dust them or like, say, you know, just, you know, kind of being stupid and, and, and cutesy about it. And, and I was playing along and then I got there and I'm sitting there at the table and, um, you know, my jaw is just dropped. And I'm like, not only does he understand this more than any other politician I've ever heard, he understands this more than most people, you know, most people don't understand that, uh, you know, what, what a buyer, what a, what a free energy remittance market really will mean for society. It's a humongous deal. And here's this guy that I've, yeah, like I've, I've been trained to when I hear his name and when I see his face, think douchebag or think bad person. And, and so to hear this person come out and say this thing that is, you know, is innately, in my opinion, like I think, sustainable energy is an apolitical thing. It should be an apolitical thing. And to hear this person that's sort of like the boogeyman from the majority of the people that I look up to say this thing that I wish more people were saying. Yeah, it was, it was really shocking. In fact, Mark, I actually tweeted, I sent a tweet and I was like hearing Ted Cruz and I tagged him in it, sitting down and talking about how Bitcoin can fix the energy grid and Texas needs it. Uh, can fix the energy grid is like one of the most, I, I, I can maybe pull it up, but like one of the most just like confusing things that I've, that I've really ever experienced. And this is coming from like a former Bernie bro. And, and I think I said something cute to the effect of like the left is getting left behind or something like that. And he retweeted it. And I was yeah. like, that was not my intention. I wasn't trying to like yeah. fuel your ego, but at the same time, I think that it was, it, I wasn't even trying, I wasn't sending it out because I wanted to fluff Ted Cruz. I right. sent that out because I wanted to right, right. antagonize the left that aren't getting this thing. And it's like, you are going to lose a huge voting block if you don't adapt and you start talking like this. And this guy's done his homework and Senator Loomis has done her homework. And uh, there was another uh, representative from Texas there that, you know, had done his homework. Right. And, and so seeing these politicians that, you know, I've been sort of trained and, uh, to like, think are the enemy to know that they've done the due diligence and the homework. Exactly. I want to pause you on the train to believe yeah. they are your enemy. I think that's a very important thing to, yeah. to pause on because I think like you, I used to have that sentiment, that belief, that righteousness of looking down on others who had alternative beliefs, political views, and I was the right one. Why can't you believe what I believe? Why are my concerns your concerns? And so when I've heard some of these conservative politicians talk about Bitcoin like Ted Cruz has, it hasn't necessarily made me a conservative <laughs> voter by any means, but rather right. it's made me back up and say, holy shit. I've been extremely judgmental towards people. Yes. And totally. And, and peel back that layer of beliefs that I've had in the past towards others and realizing quite simply, 
we're all just trying to do our best and get by. Totally. And it was so refreshing to to feel like I could relate to somebody that in years past I would not have believed I could. A thousand percent. And I think it's it's so funny because it's like I've always been kind of a contrarian and a little bit anti-establishment, like a little bit of that streak in kind of more in the Bernie way, you know, less so like the, you know, I don't know, whatever that means now. But like, I always knew that there was sort of a, you know, it was really more of a purple party. And I, you know, I kind of saw that, you know, I voted for Obama twice. And then it's like, okay, you dropped more bombs than Bush. You deported more people than Trump in your first term. You know, it's just sort of like, I, I was really let down by that side. And yet still, entrenched in my like internal belief was yes, that, that like you are the enemy mm-hmm. and it's like, that's almost a lefty ideal. And I, and, and, and I think that that's such a dangerous thing because it's completely broken down our ability to have discourse. And so here I am going in being like, all right, Ted Cruz, let's see what you got to say about Bitcoin, probably something stupid. And then it's like, Oh no, actually <laughs> you, you get it. It's like, I've been judging you know, you just see that R or you see even literally just a color. You just see red right. and or an elephant, <laughs> either a, a letter, a color or an animal. And you just go, that guy is is my enemy. And it's like, what the hell? Like I've fallen into the trap of this dichotomy that doesn't exist. Right. It's like right. neither of these parties represent me as a human. And yet here I am, you know, a, a sort of objectifying and vilifying you know, these people. And I, some of them, I think literally are anti-human and are anti and, and are sort of our enemies. Um, but the idea that there isn't like good things coming out of, of that color or that animal is, is just like sort of ridiculous. And I think we've really positioned ourselves in this pit of these two sides against each other, where I think we have like the least amount of discourse, you know, ever. And again, I'm young. I, there's a lot I haven't seen, but like, I mean, there are people you know, talking about civil war and all this. And I don't think it, it's going to go that far, but like, it, it's scary, the, the the complete lack of discourse. And, and also, you know, when you say something that maybe goes against the traditional, like, so I live in California. I knew Biden was going to win. I didn't vote for Biden because I didn't think I needed to. And I, and I didn't feel comfortable doing it because I was like, you let me down so much in 2008. And I, I really like, I don't, I don't trust you that you're going to uphold all of these things. And here we are. He's, you know, re- restarting student debt. He didn't raise the minimum wage. He didn't push Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic. You know, a lot of these things that I was sort of like, okay, that's kind of what I was worried about. If I lived in a swing state, I, I probably, I probably would have, or at least considered it more, but I, I was able to make that choice. And um, yeah, I, I, I think this, just this, this vilification of the other side has sort of, uh, yeah, broken down the ability, like when I say something like that, right? Like if I say I didn't vote for Biden, I'm an, I'm a bad guy now, right. or I'm an enemy of these people that I have, you know, my friends that I have a hundred percent or 99.999% alignment with, but I didn't do this one thing, even though it actually, I was right. It didn't literally make any difference. I knew it wouldn't make any difference. It's not like I voted for the other guy, but just, I just chose not, I voted basically blew down the line. Generally I voted for all the, you know, I still voted. I vote every time, but you know, I I will opt not to vote on certain issues if I don't agree with the, either of the choices. And I'd rather, you know, 
it sort of go to the masses and let people decide. And but like I'm an enemy with for some people, or people think that I'm this you know pro-Trump, you know anti-science, whatever, because I I have these certain things that I you know I I really strongly believe are dangerous, or I'm just. I can't get myself to, you know, jump on the the boat with everybody. And, and then I get vilified. And it's like, I think once you sort of see that happen to yourself, which did happen to me in this election cycle, I really did feel that from people that I really respect and are close with when I told them, like, I don't think I'm going to vote for this person. And people were like, how can you, you know, you need to vote for other people and you need to vote for the, you know, the, the less, you know, you as a white male, how can you, you know, you don't have the right to do that, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, actually, like I do. And I don't think that my lack of a vote is actually doing any of the things that you're saying. And the very fact that it's blue, no matter who I think is wrong in the same way that I think we should vilify the concept of red, no matter who or whatever. Like, I think both things are wrong. These parties don't really represent us and they don't necessarily have our best interest in heart. And to break that cycle um, is really important. And we need to do that. And when you do it, people get stuck in this cognitive dissonance sort of buyer's remorse thing. And you get, you get vilified in that same way that I'm just as guilty of vilifying Ted Cruz as right. Right. So it's funny. You start to see which ways you perpetuate that cycle and which ways you can try to break it. It, it, It's really fascinating. This brings me back to the progressive aversion toward Bitcoin. And do you think there's any component to that in the sense that Bitcoin is a technology, how can it do the good that you're saying it will do? I think there's a uh, a hangup within progressive thought that we need to have this next hope, the next Obama who is going to change everything and bring forth this uh, progressive utopia. I, I think there is a hangup on the fact that Bitcoin is a simply a technology. And, and to a certain degree, we have an aversion, not necessarily to technology per se, but the Zuckerbergs and the Dorseys of technology and our lack of trust of them and in turn project that onto the protocol itself. How can a technology create the change that you're talking about? It's not, it's not an Obama. It's not the next great hope out there. It's not going to achieve those things. We need political movements in order to do so. Yeah, I think I think uh, Jeff Booth is one of my favorite people in the spaces, um, and I think his book "The Price of Tomorrow" is a must read, and I think everyone should read it. I bought it for so many people, and I, he has sort of a you know a thing that he keeps retweeting at people when they talk about you know climate change and stuff, and he's like, "How can you have a system that requires inflation and requires expansion and sure. growth? Yep. How can you systematically fight you know this this uh, you know consumption of resources when you don't?" disrupt the system and don't actually change the status quo. And so I think, yeah, I think really what Bitcoin has done is sort of expose people that are, uh, you know, maybe incentivized to have the status quo stay in place. And I think a lot of people have co-opted the progressive movement like a Biden or something, you know, it's like Biden's not a progressive. Like he would be, a, he would be a centrist in any other country, right. at right. least if not a, if not a righty, you know, and in Europe, like he wouldn't be a, he wouldn't be a progressive even a little bit. And he said some really messed up things about people and about demographics and things. And, you know, and, and so for him to be sort of the figurehead of this, this movement, or even like a Hillary Clinton too, it's just like, I, I just don't know if I really trust your your intentions of your progressivism, it almost seems like you're co-opting it. 
Completely. And it's like, you needed to say, I want gay marriage to be legal. It's like, it's almost felt like you were forced that you had to say that. Even Obama, actually, ironically, this is a win for Joe, but Joe Biden actually came out and just kind of said it. And it forced the Obama administration to make a declaration because they were like, well, we weren't really going to do that. But (laughs) Joe is Joe. And so now we're stuck and we have to sort of own this position, which I think, you know, is a great I have I have, uh, you know, queer family members. I have trans family members. I'm super like, of course, I'm pro human. And I think anyone should be able to do what they want to do. And the government shouldn't have any say on that. But yeah, I think a lot of the progressive movement isn't actually progressive. They've co-opted a lot of these terms and a lot of these things because it is a voter block that's so big. And um, yeah, I think the technological aspect, I think it's more that it's actually economic rather than technological. Because I think that there's a big thing in the progressive movement that's just anti-money, right? It's like anti-billionaires, anti-rich. And and this whole, you know, this debate that we're seeing now between Warren and Elon Musk and like Musk is like, I've paid more taxes than any American in American history, you know? And that's funny. And yet it, you know, if you taxed him at a hundred percent of his net worth today, it would pay for 15 days of the 365 days of the U.S. budget. So it's like, it's not about taxes. These billionaires are not necessarily the bad guy, but we associate, you know, an acrement of wealth as being selfish, as being anti-human, as being, and it's like, well, it's not innately. Yeah, exactly. That, I would love to stay on that question for a full episode because I think the relationship to (laughs) money, we associate money and the desire for it or what it can do, investment in, et cetera, with elephants, with red with Ted Cruz's. Yeah. And we don't see it yeah. as, as you put it earlier, voting with your money. And if we right. if right. we want to change the system, you have to play the same game that the politicians are playing and vote with your money. Um, totally. So I'm going to jump way ahead here. And um, one of the critiques that have been pushed uh, back onto progressives who have critiqued Bitcoin is if you are not seeking an alternative to the petrodollar, are you complicit in the petrodollar's violence? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. And that's the thing that pisses me off so much about a lot of the, yeah, especially the environmental stuff with, with uh, uh, there's, there's an amazing piece by Susan, I, I think it's pronounced Susan Zhu. Um, it's called, uh, You Think Bitcoin's Dirty, consider the carbon cost of the, of the U S dollar or the petrodollar. Mm-hmm. And it, it breaks down the whole system, how it works. I learned so much from that piece. I post it all the time. I'm always sending it to people. And it's like, you want to talk about the energy usage of Bitcoin. And then it's like, do you know how much the energy use of literally just air conditioning our troops in the middle East is, or keeping our jets fueled or our tanks running and, and the literal monopoly of violence that's necessary, literal colonialism, literally the, the U.S. petrodollar system is upheld via colonialism over natural resources. Like, literally. Like, you can say that. It's fact. And so when you're, when you're poo-pooing on Bitcoin for wasting energy or, or being for criminals or, or any of these things, it's just like, but what's the alternative? Okay, turn those same questions around and, and, and put them on the dollar system. How much energy is the dollar system using? Who's taking advantage of the dollar system? Who's getting, who's, who's getting, you know, 
literally oppressed because of the dollar system, be it, you know, savers who are rapidly losing purchasing power from inflation or literally people whose countries are getting invaded and colonized, right? So that's something that just really, really, really upsets me with the progressive talk because it's like you're really not understanding the very system that you are empowering and you were empowered by. Exactly. And I think that that, that shows a really gross negligence and it, it is your duty as a public official, you serve us to do your homework and understand what it is that you're perpetuating. And if you're perpetuating that Bitcoin's for criminals and it wastes a bunch of energy, then you need to also you know, uphold those same standards to the US dollar system and the thing that got you elected or, or pays your bills or keeps you in place. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the misunderstanding of the petrodollar system, I mean, this is where I get to the like, I don't know if economic literacy is an accident that it is not taught. Right. And it's not that I'm a, you know, I mean, I love getting into conspiracies and things. And I, I think it's very interesting to talk about a lot of that stuff, but I don't mean it in a conspiracy way. I just think there's sort of like an incentive to not teach people about these things so that the people that really do understand it are allowed to take advantage of it. It's like a secret code. And, um, I think that there's no more place where that's more important than in central banking, uh, invest, VC investment banking, and politics. And those three sort of, you might even say that they're really the same branch, but I think those, those like three things, you know, they take such advantage of the US dollar system without acknowledging any of the human cost, how many people have died, you know, the energy cost, the carbon cost. Um, it's just really disingenuous to um, knock Bitcoin for these things without... A, acknowledging the pros of Bitcoin, but B, not acknowledging the cons of the U.S. dollar system. Exactly. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, it's a, that's a real personal battle for me. <laughs> Admittedly, it wasn't until learning about Bitcoin over the past, for me, four plus years that you understand about the petrodollar system. I had no idea. Totally. Before that. And, you know, so I, I don't fault a lot of the people who don't see that connection and, and you know, they'll say, Oil is bad. Fossil fuels are bad. Okay, get that. But then do you understand the connection to how that is, in, in essence, the new gold backing for the U.S. dollar and it is what has maintained U.S. hegemony right. since then? And most most don't to the degree that I would admit that I think most Bitcoiners do. And it, it's sad, but I think that's coming forth. And again, the mental loops that people can play around that argument and still rationalize it, I find sad and surprising. And again, I think a lot of it falls back on, well, let's fix that too. Let's get the right person in to fix the petrodollar system. And it's like, no, that's never going to happen. If you want change, you have to start from the outside. And that's that's sort of that Jeff Booth thing where he's just like, why do we keep trying to fix the system from within the system? Yep, yep. We need to disrupt the whole thing. We can't have incentives for growth and expansion not just incentives, but a necessity for growth and expansion. Um, it's going to do bad things to our planet, our people, our saving mechanisms, all the things that we are now seeing. It's all coming to a crux right now. I mean, I think this is going to be some of the most illuminating you know, few months in American history, actually, I think, in, in terms of mass educating the people. Like retail has acknowledged inflation. And inflation has been going on for 50 years, right. for more than that. I mean, you know, this is one of those things I think people... And I love to talk about it because it's fun, but this idea of like Bitcoin and hyperinflation of the US dollar and what that's going to mean. But let's be honest, Bitcoin doesn't need hyperinflation 
2% compounding year after year is a humongous loss of purchasing power. It's a huge leak of entropy in, in the energy system of, of our economic system. And um, we don't need hyperinflation. But the fact that now we're actually seeing and retail is acknowledging and people are worried you know, people that I never would have thought, you know, I've been kind of a, a sound money inflation chicken little for, you know, the last like four years since I, since Bitcoin taught me by showing me, okay, here's a new system. These are the incentives of this system. You learn the incentives of that system, and then you can actually apply that and compare it. You need to have something to compare it to. And I think the US dollar system got along, you know, so long with its, its hegemonic status because there wasn't anything else that was around that even let people consider a, an alternative. And so now we have an alternative that has millions of users. It's Bitcoin is probably the most important brand in the world. Like I think Facebook was close. I think they might have messed it up with Meta. I don't know what's going on there. Apple's pretty big. And you got like Nike and Microsoft and stuff, Google. Google's really big. That's like a word. But Bitcoin is like a brand, you know? And it's a it's a trillion dollar brand. And it's it it is it is leaving a path of self-sovereign educated people in in its wake. And um I think that, yeah, it, it, it's uh I think you and I, it seems like we got into Bitcoin about the same time. And I think you know, there's a reason why we're where we are right now because Bitcoin has showed us an incentive and in a and in an alternative that has allowed us to question things that were unquestionable before. So here we are. We could be talking, I think, for the next three hours. Yeah. <laughs> I want to touch on two more topics sure. uh, before we finish, and they're both big topics. Yeah, let's do it. But you and I, I think, crossed paths initially when we were on the Twitter Spaces talking about time preference. <laughs> And I, I got brought onto that spaces not knowing the context with regard to um, William Luther's pushback on, yeah. on the definition and whether or not it was, in fact, time preference. So I wasn't prepared to acknowledge that. But I wanted to, I don't want to focus on whether or not it's quote unquote time preference changes, but I want to get your thoughts on, call it what you will, change in behavior that has been driven by. Bitcoin. And I also want to hear about more about your project with regard to sobriety as it relates to that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I actually have an article that is being published today uh, called Bitcoin and the Commodity of Time. And uh, I actually made a, a, an allegory to uh, the open source taper movement that developed around the Grateful Dead culture of when they allowed people to record their concerts for free there developed this whole community of people that would, you know, tour around with the band and start recording and yada, yada. And anyway, it kind of gets into how, you know, sounder money allowed people to have this time to um, pursue hobbies in, in a more professional way. And I think that that's something that is innate with Bitcoin where this culture around Bitcoin, where like you and I have the opportunity to sit and talk right now during the day instead of like, you know, growing food or, or, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're a doctor and a hard worker and all that, but I'm able to have my day today where I can just talk about this and I don't have to be struggling as I was four years ago. The actual effects of Bitcoin on my free time and on my time, it has allowed me to purchase more free time that I can pursue Bitcoin um, and education. And I think that that's something you can't really remove from the, uh, the protocol of Bitcoin. And so I, I love, actually, I love William Luther. I've been watching a lot of his videos and um, he's an OG, OG. And he talks so much interesting stuff. 
Um, he, he's really, he's, he's, he's broken down a lot of things that I sort of assumed and I took for granted about Bitcoin, right, right. um, because he's been grokking it for since like 2010 or something. Um, and I, I think he's, I think he's incredibly smart and really accessible, a really nice guy, but, uh, yeah, I disagree with him entirely. And I think, I think the argument is pretty much just a semantics argument actually. So in terms of how much I disagree with him, I disagree with his semantics, but regardless, I mean, Bitcoin it, it was designed, and I, you know, I like to call it a discovery because I think it is. But at the same time, it was literally designed by humans or a human, or, or I don't know, maybe an AI or an alien or something. But I'm, I'm pretty sure a human. And um, uh, what it does, and in, in the way that it works, is it, it, you know, it literally was designed to be a, uh, you know, again, the political message of the chancellor on the brink of another bailout. It, it was designed to be a vacuum to consume this ever expanding debt bubble that, you know, our fiat, you know, central banking has sort of led us into. It was literally designed to be an answer to where we are now. And that's why right now it's sort of like, this is Bitcoin's time to shine. And it's been shining, you know, since March, 2020, when the kind of the markets really first acknowledged the difficulty that we were in. Um, it's, you know, gone up like, 20x cents, basically. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see that. But I think what it really does is it, um, the way that it was designed um, with its supply issuance and its its, its happening schedule is that it, it, it does make ledger space more and more important and more rare over time, which extrapolates the purchasing power of the ledger space over time. So when you, when you take a, you know, a minimum wage day working in 2010 and you invested that into Bitcoin, you now have the rest of your life and in 2021, uh, you're good. You know, you can live the entirety of the rest of your life and never have to work again. Obviously, you know, that was kind of catching the very beginning of this rapid, you know, we've literally never seen expansion of, of an asset ever. That's no, nothing has ever moved as fast as Bitcoin or as hard as Bitcoin, just literally. But what it does to human time preference for the people that use it, I think is profound and it allows you really to not just store and save. And I do like to think of Bitcoin as a savings technology, but it's more than that. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a growth technology. It's a, it's a savings with more you know, compounding annual growth rate than any other technology that's ever existed. And I think that um, that's a really big deal. And um, I think the effect that it has on people's lives and their time preference or reference um, is, 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 you know, it would be a shame to not acknowledge it because, you know, I've been able to have so much more free time to dedicate to art. I took a month off to, um, you know, to go down and I rented a, a little, little house in the middle of the desert and brought my friends out and I got to pay them and we like made a record and it was super fun. And, and, and so the, the one of the main things that I dislike about the Bitcoin community, and there's not a lot, but I think the idea that Bitcoin is a means to an end um, is really not talked about enough. And I think that, you know, the way if we learned anything from the, you know, the, the user activated soft fork and the block size wars is that it's not just nodes on the system that matter. Because I could, I could start my own coin. I could fork Bitcoin and, and run a 10,000 million nodes on a computer uh, that I run, and I could technically have more nodes in the Bitcoin network, but if they're not economic nodes, it doesn't matter. So economic nodes are what dictates the the consensus in the system. And we are, uh, as an offshoot 
of the system, we are the economic nodes in reality. And so the stronger we are and the more resilient we are, and the more we establish our life where we are able to sustain volatility in the fiat political environmental world, right? We are strengthening the network and we are a stronger and you know economic node, even if that means actually distributing some of your Satoshis and buying a home and getting off of some of these fiat leeches that you know pay into the system and perpetuate some of this like vampiric activity. So this whole idea of you can never sell Bitcoin and this, it's like I, I think that that's really not that's not good for Bitcoin. Um, and I don't think there's any better money than Bitcoin, but there are things that are worth more than money. And 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 health is the first wealth. Bingo. Yeah. And don't sell your Bitcoin for dollars necessarily. Um, I don't try to trade anymore. I don't. I haven't done any leverage or trading in like three years. I'll I'll buy dips and stuff, but that's basically it. But yeah, like set yourself up to be a, a strong, sustainable economic node on the system to 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 better you know perpetuate the system and and and. Don't just train, don't, you know, when you're educating, don't just have someone get a Coinbase account and leave all their money in, in the Coinbase account. It's like, you're not teaching them right. You're not actually strengthening the network. You're, you're allowing, you're putting more money into this, like, you know, rehypothecary that is a centralized exchange rather than like setting them up properly and taking the time and showing them how a transaction works. And, you know, there's, I, I don't think that you're really helping the system just by holding Bitcoin on a centralized exchange. There's so much more to it than that. And I think that really gets into the humanness of the of the Bitcoin network. It's just code, right? But we're the we are the network. We are the people. We are the we are the economic nodes. And so um I think the time preference thing is is huge in understanding how it can really help humans because it buys them time to make art, to have a family, to build sustainable grids, to plant food, to get back to nature, to, to get back to these things that, you know, what's the point of being here? Why are we here? You know? And so with some of the issues I have with someone like an Elon Musk or something, it's like, I think, you know, solar technology, battery technology, electric cars, and going to space are some of the most important things we can do as humans. And yeah, you know, he, I, I disagree with this Dogecoin crap, I agree with those, you know, that's what we should be putting some of our energy into. And, and so I think Bitcoin can allow and will allow, um, a, a, there will be a, a flourishing, you know, that sort of Bitcoin is Venice concept of uh, Alan Farrington, I think is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I break it down just simply as Bitcoin is savings technology. If you have more substantive savings, you're more future thinking. Mm -hmm. If you can think about the future in a practical way, it gives you hope. And with that hope, it allows you to think about other elements of your life that you want to change as well. And then I think that's where it translates, where we've seen translate into making healthier choices. And, and it gives you purchasing power, mm -hmm. you know, as we said, like voting purchasing power, where you want to plant your Satoshis. It's like you actually have, again, it's like this is the kind of the first opportunity where like the working class really has it as an advantage and might have front run institutions. And now we actually have an ability to like reestablish the pecking order of, right. no, we're going right. to do pro people. We're going to do, you know, we're going to fix a lot of these problems that the system we have now doesn't, doesn't fix. And I, and I think you wanted to sort of talk about kind of my own personal um, story with like, in regards to my project and sobriety. And I mean, I literally went from like drinking at work and, and doing other things at work and, and alongside of that, 
And instead of like going to the bathroom to like do drugs or whatever, I would literally like run to the ATM during a dip and deposit my tips and, 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 and save in Bitcoin, like literally. And, um, I, I like to be very upfront about, you know, sort of my struggles and stuff. Cause I think it's just like, it's helpful for people. And that's kind of been the whole, thank you. I yes, wanted to do, you. of course, I wanted to do the pin project anonymously because of my influence by Satoshi and Bitcoin. And my co-founders were like, no, you need to talk to people about like the realities and, and put a face to the story. And I was like, all right, all right, fine. But like, I really try to make it not about me as much as possible, but like the reality is like, I went from being like, okay, I got money in my pocket. It's burning a hole. Let's go spend this money. I'd get off work. I'd just go to another bar, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was just gone because I didn't really have this, like, I didn't really feel incentivized to save or to build my future because I, I really felt kind of hopeless. And also in a lot of ways, I felt really empowered by some of the stuff I was doing, you know? And I think um, I read this great book uh, by Charlie Eisenstein. He's a social economics writer. Um, called it's got a new agey title, but it's like the more beautiful world our hearts know to be true or something like that. And he talks about leaning into your vices and understanding what it is about the vice that's you know serving you. So instead of like poo-pooing the vice and saying like nope, you know no cocaine, no no alcohol, no weed, you know just cut it off. It's all bad. Like actually look at it and say no, like, what is it doing for you? And it's like oh in this moment. When I would go to work, I worked at a really famous bar. We, we won tons of awards and it was always busy. And, you know, I got to travel and go around the country and, and do workshops and go do guest things. And it was like really exciting. And I felt really empowered by it. And I felt powerful. And that was part of the vice, what it was serving me. And so instead of just rejecting it and not learning from it, actually turn towards it and say, oh, no, this is giving me power. This is giving me you know, this thing that I'm really missing in my life that I, I, I really need, mm -hmm. but how can I find it in a way that's healthy and not destructive and not actually hurting me and limiting my ability to be empowered in the future for a momentary 15 minutes of, of, of feeling good and having fun. Right. So I think Bitcoin re-incentivized my, my life. And instead of being sort of like, whatever, you know, I can, I can spend $200 tonight on partying because I'm going to work tomorrow and make $350 bartending or whatever. Um, I was literally, I went from, you know, just, you know, who cares to, oh, now I have this thing that I know is not going to be messed with. It's giving me future power. I'm learning about it. I'm learning. It's, it's opening up all these doorways. I'm learning about, you know, all these things we're talking about, all the political stuff, all this petrodollar system, you know, basic economic literacy, and just all the things that Bitcoin teaches you. And all of a sudden I had an outlet and a vice in a weird way. And, and, and we like to reject our biology so much, but Bitcoin gamifies our biology, our, our um, hunter-gatherer collective you know, mathematical brain. It, it gamifies it uh, in a really healthy way that it, 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 we like to reject our biology so much. And I think we should learn from it. Um, and so Bitcoin is sort of this like, really cool tool that that still acknowledges the like need to like you know be a mammal and like store a bunch of nuts for the winter you know but it gamifies it in this way and i think that uh yeah it really bitcoin has changed my life so much um because it's given me like hope and an outlet for you know the way that these things these former vices used to fill my life well again thank you for 
talking about your struggles in the past and thank you for doing the project that you're doing. And I'm glad that you chose to disclose that it's you, Mark Goodwin, who's doing this. And the reason I say that is because hearing your story, even though you, you, you think it's not about you, it is about you because I relate to you now. I understand your struggles and I can relate to those struggles and it can help me better understand what mine are and to know that there's opportunities for change for me going forward as well. So remaining anonymous in that situation, I think was, I agree with your friends, not the the right move. So <laughs> being able to better relate to each other uh, in this manner, I think is tremendously important. So thank you for for doing that. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think, I think Satoshi could not have done what they did without being anonymous. Whereas I, I think the opposite, the, the, again, it's the incentives. <laughs> uh, my intentions were I didn't want to make it about me because I didn't want it to be this like selfish, self-fulfilling thing. But the reality of it is people that are out there that are struggling need to see someone to identify with to be like, oh, that's a human who got out of this thing that I struggled with a lot of these same things. And they're giving me a, not only just techniques, but a literal tangible tool to like, I, I literally made the project because I was like, this is what I wish I had when I was struggling and I didn't have it. So I want to build the tool and leave it behind. I don't need it anymore. I don't wear the pin because I struggle with, with, with like not drinking when I, when I go out, like I, I've, you know, it's the same with like being a, a vegan. Like I don't even see the meat on the menu anymore. I don't even consider it. But when I first quit eating meat, I was like, oh, that chicken burrito sounds really good. And, you know, and I used a lot of like almost like methadone-esque things of like fake meat and these things to sort of break right. my my habits. And I think that was really important for breaking my drinking habits. You know, I, I, I you know, developed- Fake meat as methadone. Right. Point. I mean, I love it's, it. a, it's a reality. And, and but there, <laughs> there are techniques for getting myself to, you know, where I wanted to be. And so a lot of the project was like, Oh, I started doing grapefruit shots at the bar, juice shots. Cause so much of when you take a shot of alcohol, it's, you don't actually feel the alcohol effects. It's the sugar. And so it's like, you can still have that wonderful serotonin, you know, social cheers with everybody without actually drinking any alcohol. And so I started doing that, mm -hmm. you know, mocktails became a much bigger part of, of the programs of the bars that I was working at. And then mm -hmm. also non-alcoholic beer. And then just, you know, being there for people when, you know, I'd have people come up and be like, Hey, I'm with like my work staff and I don't want them to know I'm pregnant. Like, can you make me a fake looking drink that, and I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, but it's like, people are like afraid of, of some of these things. So the, the idea of like, okay, I need to be a face to sort of let people attach to me, not because I think I'm better than anyone or my story is more important. The opposite. It's like, I'm just like one of you guys. We all struggle with this stuff. Um, so if you need a face to latch onto, you know, come, but whereas I think with, Bitcoin, it's like when you're creating an economic system and an incentive structure and a protocol, you don't want a centralized face. You don't want a relatable face. You want an apolitical, apersonified system. And so, yeah, very interesting uh, sort of uh, juxtaposition there. I've got two more questions for you. Yeah. And I know you've written a beautiful article that I'll link to uh, regarding Bitcoin and, and environmental concerns and how it's affecting the grid, the electrical grid. So I don't want to jump into that because that's going to be, again, another huge discussion. What I what I want to uh, ask you, though, is similar to my first question. And as an environmentalist, how did grappling with Bitcoin's energy usage fit into that 
frame of reference for you? Was it immediate? Did you have to really crunch the numbers? What was it that allowed you to grok Bitcoin's ability to do what it can do? Uh, well, I'm you know willing to burn some bridges here with some of my more toxic friends, but it actually came from going through, uh, and it was related to my project, but actually going through and grokking proof of stake and learning about how these systems work that are supposedly these like alternative systems to the waste of Bitcoin and learning about them. And actually specifically how it related to the PIN project, I wrote this white paper for a proof of stake system that uh, for nonprofits to be able to take like net zero donations instead of donor advisor funds and take you know, like a hundred thousand dollar donation and use the proof of stake system to take out, you know, the yield. And then I can return you your donation at the end of the year. And we've just used the yield. And I built this whole system. I didn't build it, but I wrote out this whole system. And then when I actually, it's funny, like going back and looking at that white paper, it's like, you described a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty much quite literally a Ponzi scheme. And I think a lot of these proof of stake systems quite literally are a Ponzi scheme. And, and I don't think they're necessarily bad intentioned or the actors are bad necessarily. I think a lot of them are, but mine certainly wasn't. I, I'm the same person I was when I wrote it. I just had a, a huge gaping hole of ignorance where I didn't really see that there's no such thing as free lunch. And certainly when it comes to economic systems, that it doesn't really work that way. So I actually, I always was a Bitcoiner. I started with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has always been the strong majority of the portfolio, not just in when I did hold you know altcoins, but in in my life like it's it, since i got into bitcoin it always was more than my savings and you know even when i held other coins bitcoin was always like 80% plus you know i always knew bitcoin was the one but i don't think i really understood why and then as i i you know started taking you know some electrical classes and and got into um you know the literal like you have to economic systems and markets are all buyers and sellers. Everything can be reduced to a buyer and a seller, even if there's complicated, you know, margin and market makers. And, you know, there's, you know, all of these funny, you know, advancements on top of it. At the end of the day, it's still a buyer and a seller and it's a debt and a, and a credit. Like all, all economic systems can be, can be brought to that. It's about expressing the volatility between two parties. One's a credit, one's a debt. And, and the, the, the way that you create value in the digital space is by incurring an electrical debt. That's how you, you, you take on an electrical debt and an electrical cost to mine Bitcoin and to create a Bitcoin. And it creates a floor that you wouldn't sell the Bitcoin that you mined for less than the electricity that you spent. And so you actually imbue a floor into the system and you create an economic system that has a debt that is imbuing the system with credit. And so when that finally clicked for me, it ruined any of my uh, dreams of uh, sort of a proof of stake system working because I realized that much like central banking, you can't control P economic activity. You can't control P microchips. You can't, you can't just print oil. Right, um, you can print the purchasing power, and 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 that's obviously what we're doing. But you're not actually creating goods um, or economic activity. You're just creating more tokens and a bigger denominator 
um, for your economic system. You know, a hundred dollar bill is not a hundred dollars. It's a hundred dollars divided by the total amount of US dollar system. And when that has no cap and is completely being inflated all the time, you're constantly losing your purchasing power. So I think I like sort of learned that the energy cost is innate to the system having any purchasing power. Then you need that energy cost to go into the system. And then furthermore, what is that actually energy doing? And it is spending time. You're using energy to spend time to put in work to uh, establish immutability within the within the system. There were there were you know, blockchain is not necessarily a great technology. Like it's a, it's a clunky database. And there's only a few things that really demand the need for a decentralized blockchain uh, or a decentralized database. You're much better off, you know, for, you know, so many of these systems being more centralized actually makes a lot more sense. But for Bitcoin and for sound money and for being a base layer at the bottom of the, of the financial, you know, economic layered you know, parfait of, of, of our system, it's worth it. And it's worth the, the clunkiness and it's worth the cost that it takes to uphold that. Solving the Byzantine general's problem as, from a computer science standpoint is, is exceptionally important. Um, and it is a tech, huge technological advancement. And it requires time being inputted into the network, which requires energy. Um, so in terms of the like, the major misunderstanding is that A, you cannot waste energy. It's just, it's against the laws of thermodynamics. And also renewable energy is the worst word ever. And I wish it didn't get used because it gives power to, you know, more disingenuous people to, to poo-poo their quote unquote renewable energy market because they're like, well, you know, renewable doesn't even exist. And it's like, that's true. Actually, there isn't, there's sustainable energy, there's cheap energy. Like renewable energy is kind of a misnomer and a narrative, but cheap energy is not. And so this idea that the energy grid would stay the same and Bitcoin, like there were like fear mongering articles written like four years ago. That's like Bitcoin's on pace to consume the entirety of the world's energy. And it's just like, how could you write a sentence like that and not even just like think about what that would mean? So first off, you're not wasting any energy, you know, securing proof of work. You are, you are creating a system that is worth so much. Anything that goes into the system that is securing it, it's worth it. Creating a base layer of money for volatility between two parties that's censorship resistant with a fixed supply is such an important development for humanity that it's worth any of the energy going into it. But the, but the literal like incentives of the system is not, okay, if it costs us $95 worth of coal to produce $100 worth of Bitcoin, you're not just going to throw all of the coal in the world into a Bitcoin machine. You're going to find out that if I use this hydro dam over here and I can get 20 bucks for $100 of Bitcoin, I'm going to stop burning coal and I'm going to start monetizing this, this cheap energy over here. And then once we integrate it into solar and we literally have basically zero cost energy and we get that kilowatt per hour down to like a cent or below, you know, we, we're going to see you know, the, the opposite of what these fear-mongering people are saying. We're not going to just see, you know, crazy amounts of coal being burnt and super lossy energy. We're going to see high-capacity nuclear that if it's being wasted, it can be monetized in the Bitcoin network, which green nuclear is very green energy. It gets incredibly bad rap. And then we're going to see super low-capacity but incredibly cheap, 
you know, alternatives uh, like solar that, uh, you know, when the demand is there, they can send energy to the grid. And when it's not, they can be used to mine Bitcoin. Like that's what we're going to see. The grid is going to be modernized in this way. We can't send, you know, energy over like miles and miles and miles. It needs to be kind of spent locally. And so it needs to be the, the creation and the generation needs to be near the demand. But that's not true for Bitcoin. For the first time ever, it's geo-independent. So we can set up a huge, huge, really advanced solar array that gets more and more efficient and more and more cheap every year in the middle of the desert where no one lives. And we can establish sound money in the middle of the Sahara and not affect any humans, not be burning coal. And the people in that in that area that are around it can monetize the sun and it will do amazing things for you know all the good things that we love Bitcoin for, right? So I just think that the, the there's just like a, a pretty big misunderstanding. Um, pe- people get really afraid of energy and they think that it is always a waste uh, if it's not electric or it's not solar or it's not, I don't know, like there's, there's just a lot of mis- misunderstanding about how our energy grid works. And I think that that is, it's sort of similar to like progressives hating on billionaires. It's like progressives hate coal and gas. And it's like, well, yeah, it's lossy. There are better systems we can have, but also like we need gas and, and, and fossil fuels to create solar arrays. We need them to modernize our grid. Like we're going to need to use them. And and so sort of ignoring that is just, you're doing a disservice to a modernized electrical grid, which is what we really want. You know, we want a green sustainable grid. Yeah. That's what I tell my family and friends is that if you don't, you can ignore Bitcoin if you want, that's fine, but go study energy systems, go study what entails an electrical grid and how that is built out and the nuances to that. And once you understand that, you can better understand how Bitcoin fits into that, the entirety of that picture and how it's not this binary, Bitcoin is going to boil the oceans and we can run the world on solar energy tomorrow kind of situation. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I just think that the, yeah, that, that fear that we're going to continue doing what we're doing and not like it will incentivize cheap energy. Right. Like it will. So yeah, we're going to see that. We're going to see that play out and we already are seeing it. And energy is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, which is better for humans. And humans can participate in a global energy network that they've never been able to participate in before. It's wonderful for freedom. It's wonderful for our electrical grid. It's wonderful for the sustainability of the earth. It's wonderful for, you know, banking and fixed economic supply. I mean, it's, it's such a net positive in so many ways. My last question for you, and we skipped over a dozen so there'll have to be around too. Yeah, of course. But my last question for you is one that I've asked uh, my prior guests already, and one I'll, I think I'll continue to do. And that is, what gives you hope besides Bitcoin? Well, I would say that the majority of the hope that I get in the world right now is at least associated with Bitcoin, but not necessarily literally the protocol. For me, the thing that's given me the most hope is the connection with people that I think are really ready for change and are ready to be disruptors um, and are empowered by Bitcoin. They have the, you know, sort of the the fulcrum of what Bitcoin can do for, for your time. And I think that there's a lot of like really beautiful people that are ready to rebuild. And um, I think that there's going to be a really big artistic, political, social, economic renaissance 
that we so desperately need, especially coming out of these just like really trying times. And there's just a lot of stuff that really worries me about where we are right now and the slippery slope of where we could go. So I'm really nervous and really scared about a lot of stuff too. I want to be very honest about that. But the hope that I have for the future is that I believe in humans more than I believe in humans being bad. And I, I believe in good more than evil. And I think good will win. I don't think good is, you know, as, as objective as I'm using it now, but I think sort of like frictionlessness and sort of like how we can say that life is suffering and that sort of Dharma aspect, it's like, it's kind of true, but how can we make it as less sufferable as possible? And um, I'm really excited about what the internet has given us, what Bitcoin being sort of the internet of money will give us. I think we're going to see power structures flipped on their head. I think we're going to see a huge uprising of, 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 of true populism and not this like co-opted populism. Like, you know, I, I don't really think like the, the MAGA movement is really a populist movement, but it's kind of considered one. I think there's going to be some really like serious new developments outside of the status quo and outside of the system because of technology allowing people to establish like art collectives and um, political structures and and economic systems like Bitcoin that are very outside of the status quo, which has sort of let us down. I think we're pretty much at the end of the road for the status quo. So I think I think the hope that I see uh, in the world is is predominantly coming from Bitcoiners, but it's not necessarily about Bitcoin, but just that the, um, you know, again, that means to an end concept. And I'm really excited to see the world when the richest people in the world are people that believed in something and took a chance and were hopeful about actually making change. And I know a lot of people are just in Bitcoin to make money, but I really think you make some money in Bitcoin and then it changes your incentive of you're like, wait, no, I want other people to make, to feel like how I feel. And that's, that's sort of been my, my main mantra for like getting people set up and and secured is I want people to feel as hopeful and as safe as I do, even in these like horrible, really scary times. And so I think that like innate altruism of, of a, of an economic incentive system like Bitcoin um, beyond just the number go up stuff. I'm really excited to see what, you know, the breakdown of the old world and the creation of the new one. You know, we have an opportunity to build a really beautiful pro-human world that's fair and inclusive and champions the unchampioned and uh, platforms the unplatformed. And um, I think we have a, the best opportunity we've ever had of establishing that for people using technologies. Um, technology can easily turn into a dystopic thing, but um, I, I have too much faith in uh, the purpose of humans um, to do good and to love. And um, yeah, I think Bitcoiners, if, if that's an answer that I can say without Bitcoin, what gives you hope, if I can say Bitcoiners, it's a little bit of a cop-out, but um, yeah. Well, as a Bitcoiner, you give me hope. And I do want to steal the ending here because I'd have thought of something that I do want to emphasize and make a point of. And that is as it relates to your pen project in that if there are any listeners to this episode who are or have family or friends who are struggling with substance abuse, please reach out to us. We want to help in any capacity that we can. Um, Over the past two years, I have 
seen more people admitted to the hospital with substance abuse related issues than I have ever in the past. And so it is real. People are struggling right now. And I hope that we can help you in any capacity that we can. So please do not hesitate to reach out and uh, look into the PIN project, et cetera, and any uh, resources we'd be happy to help with. So thank you. Yeah, 100%. Mark, this was fantastic. Let's end it there. Yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) 